0: This sermon was preached by Bob G. and Sarah, head pastor of Grace and Truth in Hartsdale, New York. Grace and Truth was planted in 2002 and is seeking to reach North Yonkers and Westchester County. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gntchurch.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Genesis 12, and the children are dismissed. Genesis chapter 12, we'll be picking up in verse 10 today. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is a reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning Lord, recognizing our sinfulness, recognizing our uncleanness, recognizing our unworthiness. And Lord, we realize that no one can stand before You on their own righteousness. It is a righteousness alien to us. It is the righteousness of Christ imputed by faith. The only only basis for which we could stand before You today it's the only basis that we could praise You and worship You. And now, Lord God, as we study Your Word, I pray, Father, two things. I pray, Father, for a portion of Your Holy Spirit to be poured out on me, that I may, Lord, uh, unpack this text, that I may preach Your Word with clarity, with, uh, with understanding, with wisdom, um, that Your name may be glorified here. And I pray for everyone here today, Lord. I pray... Uh, For those in the audience, those who are here worshiping you, Father, uh, your sheep, I pray you'd open their ears and their hearts to receive from you today, to receive your word, that they may be uh, um, lifted up to you, Lord, that they may see you glorified. Lord, that you would bring comfort and grace and conviction and, and that we would have a closer walk with you. Lord, that we would leave here better today than when we came in. This I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, in my early walk with God, when I first came to faith, like most Christians, I was on fire for Jesus. I mean, when I first got saved, everything was about Jesus. I talked about Jesus to everybody. I was preaching in my house to everybody. I I, I mean, they just got sick of me telling them to repent. I mean, my life was, was, you know holiness was just the path. I mean, there was nothing I wanted to do apart from what was pleasing to God. And like most Christians, we, we start our early days and uh, with Christ and, and there's a great zeal and a great love and a great ambition. And so is the case even with Abram as we've been learning in our texts. Um, but as I was growing in my walk with the Lord, growing in my studies, growing in my prayer and fellowship, uh, I, I found myself... Uh, facing a trial in the year 2000. Uh, the year 2000 uh, was probably at the height of, of my early journey with, with the Lord. And uh, I hurt my back. I, I injured my back very badly. I used to uh, work for a, a steam fitting supply company lifting really heavy items. And I injured my back pretty badly. Um, and I was out of, work on, uh, out of work on disability for one year. And uh, let me tell you, that one year being on disability drove me absolutely crazy. Uh, that, was, that was one big trial, not to be able to work, not uh, to be in this, uh, um, tr- uh, this, this court case for disability and having people spy on me, watching. Man, was it really burdensome. And there was nothing more I wanted to do than to go back to work. I couldn't wait to get back to work. So I couldn't go back to work in construction. And, of course, the thing I relied back on was my background in the restaurant industry. So in 2001, after sending out many resumes, I was finally offered a job at a four-star restaurant in Eastchester as a, as a dining room manager. And I was thrilled. I mean, this was a really fancy restaurant. Um, it, was, it was a chic restaurant. It was on the map. It was the place people wanted to go. Um, it was a place that if you were a manager, um, you had a sort of prestige there. Uh, people, you know, it was—it was, it was a, definitely an image-enhancing position. You wanted to work there, and uh, it was certainly a, a classy place to work. And without much prayer or consideration, I jumped on it. I just accepted the job. It was as far as I was concerned, okay, this is a no-brainer. But little did I know what was ahead of me. Soon, I found out my hours were long and hard. I'd go in at 2 in the afternoon. If I was lucky I got out at midnight. Most of the time I'd put in a 12-hour day and get out at 2 in the morning. I found out also quickly that although I was promised I wouldn't work on Sunday so I could go to church, I found myself working every Sunday as the new person on the block. And within months I had missed church, I had missed Bible study, and because of my late hours I had no opportunity to fellowship with any of my friends because while they were working and I was sleeping and while they were home I was working. Within three months, the stress and the pressure of this new lifestyle took a toll on me. I began to make friends with my coworkers in my loneliness because I had no other people to talk to or be friends with. Of course, getting out of work at 2 in the morning, you're not ready to go to sleep and you don't want to be alone. And so before you knew it, I started uh, joining my friends from work for a few innocent drinks here and there at the bar down the street. Before you knew it, after quitting smoking for two years... I had picked up cigarettes again, just one here or there. Before you knew it, I found myself cursing, which I hadn't done in quite a long time. And the trend just seemed to be getting worse and worse and worse. One night in particular, I went out with a group of co-workers to a nightclub, and what do you know, I run into an old acquaintance of mine from before my conversion after recognizing me, the person comes up to me and goes, Bob? Bob Sarah?" I said, yeah. He goes, I thought you were Mr. Born Again. Going out and preaching sin and repentance to everybody. Telling everybody to get their lives right with God. Look at you, sitting here in the club, just like all of us, drinking, smoking, and having a good time. i got to tell you, it was so humiliating at that point to be reproved by somebody from my past, to be caught off guard, and to be found in such a horrible state, I literally ran out of the club, weeping, crying in agony because of the guilt and uh, the, uh, the way I felt that I had offended God. And on my way home driving that night, I must have wept and cried out and prayed to God uh, for I mean, for, for hours, just, just recognizing how quickly I had just drifted away from God and how quickly I had been sucked into, to a, I took, went into a bad rut spiritually. But it was a good night. God used that incident to bring me to repentance. And I realized that no matter how nice and prestigious my job was, no matter how much money I made, it was not God's will for me to do that job. And the reason was, I had entered into this job, I went this course of life without seeking Him, without praying or considering what was God's will. I just simply went by what my conventional wisdom would tell me to do, thinking, well, what else am I to do? Have there ever been times where you, as a Christian, as a believer, took a no-dive spiritually? I'm sure you have. All of you here at one point or another in your spiritual walks have taken nosedives. All of you have fallen short at one time or another. A crisis or an unexpected circumstance comes into your life. And how we react and deal with it at the time can make a monumental change in our lives and alter the course of our life. Well, such is the case for Abram, as we're going to learn today. We already learned about Abram's call, God's great promises to him to make a nation of him, to bless him, to bless those who bless him, to curse those who dishonor him. We see Abram's great faith. Uh, he makes an 800 mile trek from Haran to Canaan. Um, he lives this pilgrim life in a strange land. He's building altars all throughout Canaan, proclaiming the name of God uh, with boldness. Uh, we get a glimpse of this great man of faith and the great start that he had. And then we read our text today in how quickly, how quickly, soon after Abram's conversion, how quickly, soon after his great monumental acts of faith, how quickly Abraham falls into a spiritual rut. How quickly he makes a big mistake. How quickly he backslides. How quickly he loses faith and loses focus on the King and the Kingdom of God. Well, this is... This is actually here for a reason. Now most ancient stories and mythological stories from the ancient world never, ever, ever give us a a story of a failure of their hero. You're not going to read the account of Gilgamesh and find an account there of one of his failures. They just don't do that in the ancient world. But, But the Bible actually gives us a failure account of every one of our heroes. Starting right here with the father of our faith, Abraham. You know why that is? It's to demonstrate to us that every person in the Bible who believes in God is imperfect. That there are no perfect heroes. The only perfect person who ever lived and ever will live is Jesus Christ. And it's a reminder that we don't find acceptance with God. We don't find justification with God based on uh, our goodness. But based on His grace, based on His justification, based on His love for us. Clearly, Abram makes a poor judgment and it costs him severely. And today we're going to learn about Abram's fall, his lapse of faith. It is put to the test. He fails the first test. And in fact, he will repeat the mistake later in his life. In Genesis 20, we'll see the exact same thing happen again. And then we'll see it happen again in his son Isaac's life. Clearly the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And I think the repetition is there for a reason. It's because there are areas in our lives where we repeatedly fall and repeatedly sin. And this clearly was one for Abram. Alright, let's dive into this text and see what's going on here. What's happening and get an idea of uh, what Abram's test, his trial and his fall and what comes here in this early part of Abram's walk it says in verse 10 there was a famine in the land so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land now one thing is clear it is easy to believe in God it is easy to be obedient it is easy to walk the walk of Christianity when everything around you is going smooth, right? Most of us, when we come to faith, are in cloud nine. But soon after, soon after we come to faith, we will find that our cloud nine experience will be interrupted, unfortunately, by unexpected trials and circumstances. And this was the case with Abraham. In fact, it wasn't just any old trial. It wasn't any old circumstance. It was a famine. It was a severe crisis that came into Abraham's life. Now I want you to get the picture. In the ancient world... Famines are common, and they're very severe. Remember, this is, this is ancient civilization. No electricity, no power, no manufactured foods. Um, you live off the land. And so when it doesn't rain for nine months, uh, your crops dry up and die. When it doesn't rain for nine months, uh, your cattle and your sheep can't drink. And when they can't drink water, guess what happens? They die. And so when, when it doesn't rain, when there's a drought in the ancient world... It is a severe crisis. It is like the Great Depression of the 30's times 10. In fact, the Great Depression of the 30's, for those of you who know history... What was was set off, the catalyst of it, was a drought in the middle of the breadbasket of the United States, the Dust Bowl. There was a major drought. There was no rain in the middle of the country for several months, almost a year, and and all the crops of the Midwest dried up, and America's economy went down in tubes instantly. But it was far worse than the ancient world. Now get the picture. It was a severe crisis. Here's Abram, leaves his home, leaves his country. Leaves his family, leaves everything that, that, that he knows and is secure with to obey God. To go to this foreign land. He's an old man, he's 75. He, he brings his wife, his family, all his sheep, his oxen, his male servants, his female servants. He gets to Canaan. He's in this foreign country. The people don't speak his language. They don't have his customs. They worship pagan gods. And he's already been tested by all of these trials and challenges Now after all this he gets in Canaan and guess what? There's a famine. Could you imagine what he must have been thinking at that point? God, what what did you bring me here for? I might as well go back to, to Haran. I might as well go back to Ur. I can't believe I made this whole journey. I come here, God promises to bless me here, and there's a famine. People are dying. People are starving. It's at this moment of crisis where Abraham is faced with a real test of faith. How would he respond to the crisis? Well, he responds like any reasonable person would have done in that day. He resorts to conventional wisdom. And he says, you know what? I'm going to Egypt. Egypt's not too far. I'm in the Negev, which is the southern desert of Israel. a Canaan, rather, at that time. It's short pass through Arabia into into Egypt. And there we have the Kingdom of Kingdoms. Um, the Nile River is, is lush. They have irrigation. They have crops. They have resources. I'm getting my family. I'm going to head down to Egypt where the grass is greener. And that sounds like a pretty reasonable thing to do, right? But that's just the problem. That was just the problem here. A crisis came into his life. And he resorted to conventional wisdom. He did what anyone else would do, but it wasn't what God told him to do. God never told him to go to Egypt. God never said to him, Abram, go to Egypt. He told him, Abram, go to Canaan. Canaan is the land I'm giving you and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to to make a great nation of you. Had he reminded himself of the great promises of God, he would have simply stayed in Canaan, trusting that God would provide for his needs. After all, was God going to allow him to starve? Would God make such a promise and then let the the whole patriarchal family die in a a famine? Would He let all the animals die? Would He let his wife and uh, and servants die? Of course not! But you see, Abram was in a moment of crisis And what he did was, he got into survival mode. And when you are, when your back's against the wall, when there's a crisis in your life, it is our instincts, it is our natural human instincts to go into survival mode. And that is to do whatever comes instinctively to survive. But he wasn't trusting in God. That was the problem. Kent Hughes puts it very simple. He said, Abram's going to Egypt was not so much intentional sin, as it was reflexive, turn a reflexive turn to his own devices. Listen to this. He did not deny God. He simply forgot God. It's not that Abram lost his faith. It's not that he didn't believe. He simply forgot God. He forgot the promises. He forgot the word of God. And he kicked instinctively into survival mode using conventional wisdom, thinking that what he was going to do was best. He was acting according to his own wisdom. Now it's clear that Abram was working outside of God's will, and he must have known it too. You see, prior to this, when he was in Canaan, he moves through the land, and there's a pattern we've seen in the previous verses, as we remember last week, where he gets to a city, he settles down, and what does he do? He builds an altar and he worships God. And we see this pattern through uh, the previous text. Right? Um, Through Shechem to Bethel and Ai, and there's this pattern where Abram settles and worships God and builds an altar to the glory of God. But we don't see this pattern continued in Egypt. We don't see him going to Egypt and building an altar and calling on on the name of the Lord because he knew he was outside of God's will. There was no altar to build, there was no worship there because he knew clearly what he was doing was outside of God's will. You know when you're doing something wrong, you know when you're outside of God's will. The last play, thing you want to do is go to Bible study or church or do anything, right? Because you know you're going to feel the guilt of what you've done. Furthermore, his going to Egypt is symbolic of his falling away from God. You see, in the Bible, Egypt is always symbolic and figurative of the world. Uh, we see that in the children of Israel who are his descendants. They go down to Egypt... Um, And when they uh, leave Egypt and they're in the wilderness and the threat of starvation and death upon them, what do they do? They murmur to Moses, oh, if we were back in Egypt, we would have had watermelon and garlic and leeks and we'd be satisfied. And they were forgetting immediately their slavery. When Israel finally becomes a nation, there were many times down the future, pike uh, when Israel was a great nation and kings ruled there, uh, um, that they would be threatened by foreign invasions, right? Particularly in the end of Judah and Israel, when Babylon and Assyria were, were caving in to, to invade and, and conquer them. And, and what do they do? Instead of going to God and instead of seeking God, what do they do? They got on the phone and they call Egypt. Well, there's no phone, but you get the, the figurative what I'm trying to say. You know, they summon Egypt and say, hey, Egypt, you, you're a great military power. You're our neighbor to the south. You got chariots, you got horses. Uh, can we make an alliance and agreement with you so you could protect us from the Babylonians and the Syrians? And this was a common thing that Israel and Judah did that really angered the Lord. Because what they were doing was the very people that God delivered for them from, they were going back to looking for help instead of looking to God. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah thirty-one, one. Listen to how Isaiah deals with this. He says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Woe to that one. You know what woe means? It means there's a curse upon you. To depend on Egypt is to put our Our trust in human strength and wisdom in the world rather than God. But how many times do we do the same thing? How many times when an unexpected crisis comes into our lives, how do we react? Do we instinctively go into survival mode and resort to conventional wisdom? And start, start analyzing the best course of action? Do we go to unsaved people and ask them for advice? Do we go to unsaved uh, uh, people for counsel on major decisions in our lives without going to God's Word, without getting on your knees and seeking the Lord? How many times do we, do we, in the moment of crisis when our back is against the wall, when, when we feel threatened, we act impulsively making bad choices. And soon those bad choices lead to worse circumstances and a worse crisis than we were in before. And then we soon regret that we acted impulsively and instinctively. What seemed like the wise decision at the time actually turned out to be a very foolish decision. I was reading an article recently and uh, it was talking about how many times where Married couples are struggling, right? And some of you may be struggling in your marriages. And instinctively, uh, we feel, run away. Get away from the situation and things will get better. And most times people have no idea how much worse it is once they make that step towards divorce and they regret it the rest of their lives. It seems like the conventional wisdom, the easy thing to do at the time, but down the pike, oh, they live with such regret. You see, Abram should have stayed in Canaan. God was more than able to provide. He just needed to trust Him. But that didn't happen. Well, as normal, when we usually go down the road of wandering away from God, things go from bad to worse, right? Amen? One bad decision is usually followed up by more bad decisions, right? I know myself, I've done it plenty of times myself, so if you're with me and you're like me, then you probably goofed up pretty bad in your life here and there. You might be goofing up right now for all I know. Let's look at verse 11 through 13 and look at the next phase of Abram's fall and how he goes down the road, the bad road so to speak. So he's in Egypt, right? And as, as he's coming in, verse 11, look what it says. It says, when he, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, he says, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, clearly he understood the dangers and risks of the move he was making. He knew that he was going outside of God's plan because he knew he was about to go into a situation where there was a potential and real possibility of danger and risk and threat. He was jeopardizing the safety and security of his whole family, of his whole entourage, and particularly his wife's safety and security. And this is what happens when we make bad decisions. It doesn't just affect us, it affects everybody around us when we make bad decisions. And so here Abraham goes in and he now, recognizing the danger, recognizing that what's ahead, he, he plots another, another plan, another scheme, and he devises another machination uh, uh, to, to get himself through this, this outside of God's will plan for his life. And here's the concern he has. He has a valid concern. He's like, listen, Sarah, you're, you're a beautiful woman. Egyptians see you. Uh, they're going to kill me. Because the Egyptians don't really, and this was common. In the ancient world, it was very common. Uh, if you were a stranger or a foreigner somewhere, and, and you had a beautiful woman with you, and they, and they would just kill you and take you, especially in Egypt, which was a powerful nation. And so Abram hatches this plan. He's, he says, You know, tell him you're my sister. Now, why would this be? Why would he have him do that? What would be the difference? Why, why would they kill him if it was his wife, but not kill him if it was his sister? Well, here's the reason why. Again, this, we have to go back in time and understand the culture and the context of what's happening here. In the ancient world, when, when a father died, right? Terah died. Um, uh, when a father died, the sister who was unmarried was given into the care of the brother like a father to a daughter. And he was responsible for caring for um, and, taking, and, and, and and the security of his sister until she could get married. And it was his responsibility, just as the fathers, to find the right husband and to get the correct bride's price. Uh, because back then you paid a dowry, you paid a bride's price uh, for a woman. And so here's the deal. Um, Abraham is probably thinking, okay, tell them you're my sister. So if any guy likes you and they want you, they're going to negotiate with me a bride's price. And probably what he's thinking is this. While we're negotiating, I could drag out the process. And while I drag it out, we could get on our, our horses and escape and go back to Canaan. Sounds like a pretty good plan, right? But another question is this. Wait a minute. How is Sarah so beautiful when she's 65 years old? That's another question that comes into this equation. No offense to anyone here who's in that age bracket. But I mean, so beautiful. So beautiful that she, she that she's going to get kidnapped. I mean, my goodness. Uh, unless you're Suzanne Summers, and and, and and she's probably the exception to the rule. Uh, you're not in, you're not looking at your best in your 60s, male or female. So what's going on here? Is, is there an error in the Bible? Is there some kind of mistake? Well, here's what I think. I think it's a reasonable explanation. If you recall. The life expectancy of human beings prior to the flood was upwards of 900 years old, remember? After the flood, the the life expectancy started to decline. Now, it still was pretty high in Abram's time, right? Terah lived to be 208 years old. That was his father. Abraham lived to be 175. Sarah lived to be 127. She gave birth when she was in her 90s. Their grandson Jacob lived to be 130. And when he met Pharaoh, he said, my days have been few and evil compared to my ancestors. In other words, he didn't think 130 was a long life. Well, here's what I think. I think that the aging court, Abram and his entourage right to the border of Canaan, and say, get out. And God brings him home. You see, there's a foreshadow here too of Israel coming out of Egypt with Moses with great plunder from the Egyptians. But you see, God is so gracious. He knows not only to intervene to get us out of our circumstances that we get ourselves into, not only is He gracious in humbling us and teaching us, but He's also gracious in bringing us back to Himself, back to where He wants us to be, back home with Him, abiding with the Father, abiding with the Son, abiding with the Holy Spirit. Well, let me conclude by saying this. The story focuses primarily on Abraham and his lapse of faith shortly after his call. But the real emphasis of the story, the real emphasis, the real subject of the story is not Abraham. It's God. That's the real emphasis here. The emphasis is God. The emphasis is the remarkable glory and grace of God. It is a story... And a testament of God's ability to make a promise to Abraham and keep it regardless of Abram's actions. It demonstrates his unfailing forever and always love towards those he sets it upon. First, it's a remarkable testimony of God's sovereignty. See, you know what's amazing thing here? Is that God's sovereignty is all through this. God promised to bless Abram and make a nation of him. He promised to enrich him and make him a wealthy man. The remarkable things is he uses Abram's folly. He uses his foolish choices, his fall away from God. Remember what happened when Sarai was taken captive? Pharaoh blessed him with all those donkeys and and camels and male servants and female servants. He leaves Egypt back to Canaan, a wealthy man. God's grace and His sovereignty is He used Abraham's error. He used his foolishness. He used his sin. And in spite of that, He blessed them. The sovereign plan of God bringing about His will even through the foolish choices and evil decisions of man. God's plan won't be stopped, guys. When we see the sovereignty of God acting within the human race, that he works all things together for the good of those who love him called together according to his purpose. If God has a plan, he's going to make that happen and there's nothing you or anyone can do to thwart that. What 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 a glorious uh, picture we have of God here in his sovereignty. His sovereignty in in allowing Abram to go there, his sovereignty in pouring out wealth on him through Pharaoh, his sovereignty in protecting Sarah from being defiled, his sovereignty in sending the plagues of disease and death, his sovereignty of delivering them, his sovereignty of bringing them home safely. God's sovereign hand was upon that whole episode of their lives. Even though Abraham was a fool through the whole thing. Sometimes God allows us to fall so He could teach us great lessons. The Bible tells us a righteous man may fall seven times, but he always gets up. Finally, the grace. God could have thrown Abram under the bus. He could have gotten rid of him. He could have turned his back. But you see, we have to remember that God's promises to, God, to Abram were Unconditional. And when God makes a promise, when God says He's going to do something, it doesn't depend on what you do or not do. It depends on what God is determined to do. And His promises are unchanging. There is no variation. There is no shifting shadow with God. He changes not. He's not like us. We renege on our promises. We change our minds. We're very, we're, we're, we're very weird creatures. We constantly flux and change. God never changes. He's like a rock. That's why we call him the rock. A rock is unmovable, stable, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if God makes a promise, you could bank on that he will keep it regardless. And this is a picture of the gospel. Because it tells us, like Abram, we might be fools. We sin against God. We offend His glory there and, and we cannot live the perfect life before God. But He sent His Son Jesus Christ to live that perfect life. And through Jesus Christ, when we put our faith in Him, God makes fulfills a great promise, the promise of blessing through Abraham, that through Jesus Christ we will have eternal life. And if Jesus says, if you believe in Me, you will have eternal life and you will never perish, that is something you could take to the bank. If God promises you that I will do all things for your good, uh, 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 all things work together for your good... You could take that to the bank. If you could uh, uh, read the Bible where it says I have a plan for you, uh, not for evil but for good, you can trust that God means it. Because God doesn't make promises He can't keep. And it's through the Gospel that we have these promises fulfilled to us in great abundance. Remember what it says in 2 Timothy 2.13 when we are faithless, God is faithful. You may mess up, but God will never mess up. That is real grace. Turn with me your Bibles to Psalm 103 and I want you to give a picture of God's grace and love towards us. Psalm 103. Look at verses 8 through 14. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious. Amen? slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does He repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame, and He remembers that we are dust. Isn't that beautiful? I tell you, when you really know the grace of God, you know why He shows all this grace to us? Do you know why He does this? Does He do it to spoil us? No. No. He does it because He wants us to see how great He is. When you see a testimony like this of God, aren't you just filled with awe and love? When you think of your own life and how good God has been to you, don't you just well up with humility and just, God, You are awesome. I love You. Doesn't it melt your heart? Doesn't it melt your heart to know that in spite of your failures, in spite of your foolishness, God still loves you, and he still sees you through, and he shows you grace, and he blesses you in spite of your foolishness? How good God is. But you see, there's another part to this. He wants us to be like him. God wants us. He shows grace to us so that we may show grace to others. You see, it's very easy in dealing with other people when people do stupid things, when people disappoint us, when people offend us. It's very easy to say, you know what? Get away from me. It's very easy to to make an enemy of someone. It's very easy to become disgusted and dislike and despise someone when they when they don't meet up to your expectations, right? Is that how God deals with us? No. You see, God wants us to be like Him. See, God saved us. He gave us the Holy Spirit and regenerated us so that we could be restored to the image of God. So that we may reflect God. So that we may be like God. And we are like God and we bear His image when we are kind and gracious to others. Listen to what the Bible says in Galatians 3.12-14. through 14. I want you to meditate on this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. See, you know what the 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 the, do you know the, the word there is, the, the buzzword that really puts it all together is put on. Put on these things. It doesn't come naturally for us to be compassionate, kind, forgiving, and patient. No, the opposite comes natural to us. We must put on Christ. We must make an effort to show the kindness and grace and goodness towards others even if they don't deserve it because God shows grace to you every day and you do not deserve it. So the next time someone gets in your way, the next time someone disappoints you, the next time someone lets you down, the next time someone makes a fool of themselves and you, the next time someone insults you, the next time someone is, uh, uh, doesn't do things the way you want it, just remember this. God feels the same way about you, but He's still gracious and kind towards you and compassionate. He knows your frame. He knows you're but dust. Likewise, be patient and compassionate, loving and forgiving to others we will be like Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.